Most people will tell you that it's not a good idea to serve as your own lawyer in court. You need someone to represent you. And likewise, it's not a good idea to think about approaching the throne of God on your own. You need someone to represent you, someone who has the standing as well as the understanding to represent you. And in Christ, we have the effective mediator, the caring advocate, the understanding priest that we need to represent us before a holy God. Now maybe you've never thought of yourself as having a need for a priest. But as we open our Bibles today to Exodus 28 and 29, we discover that we do need a priest and that Jesus is the priest we need. If you're around my age or older, do you remember what you thought when you first heard people talking about surfing the internet? I remember wondering what it meant to surf and why anyone would want to. What would you find if you surfed and who put that stuff up there and where exactly did they put it and who's in charge of this thing called the internet anyway? I had no categories to help me make sense of it until someone used the term bulletin board. And then it started to become clear. To see it as an electronic bulletin board in cyberspace where information was posted gave me a category and helped me begin to make sense of it. Although I admit that I still wonder exactly where the internet is in the universe and who's in charge of it. Similarly, I can remember when the secretary in our department at the publishing company I worked at for the first time got that blessed little box we called a Mac Plus with its slot for floppy disks. And what helped me most as I was learning to use it was to think of the hard drive as a file cabinet and the desktop as similar to the desktop on my desk. I created documents and stored them in file folders inside larger file folders. The filing cabinet standing there in my office provided me with something familiar and tangible that gave me a category for making sense of what was happening on the screen and inside that little box, which now I'm quite sure I could not live without. Today we're going to look at something familiar and tangible that God provided to his people that would give them a category for making sense of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Throughout the history of his dealings with Israel, God provided his people with context and categories they would need to understand Jesus. When he gave instructions for the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices, he was not simply setting up a religious system that would be an end in itself. They were not means of worship that were replaced because they didn't work out. They were always meant to be temporary. In the tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifices, God was providing a framework, a set of categories that would help his people to understand the ministry of Jesus when he came. In every aspect of the priesthood, its calling, its clothing, its consecration, and its commission, we see shadows cast backward into Israel's history by our great high priest, Jesus himself. 
So let's look together at God's instructions for the establishment of the priesthood found in Exodus 28 and 29. But before we begin, we have to deal with the aversion that many of us have to the whole idea of priests. Many of us have a cynicism about organized religion. And frankly, that's what the word priest conjures up in our minds. When we think about priests, many of us see ordinary men in ornate robes, images that bring to mind empty religion or errant doctrine or even sexual abuse. Some of us simply see priests as irrelevant to real relationship with God. Others of us, on the other hand, feel rather desperate to have a priest, wanting a professional religious person nearby to be holy and serious about God because we know that we are worldly and distracted. Clearly, we're going to need to let go of our idea of the priesthood in its modern day sense so that we can enter into and embrace the priesthood as God originally designed it. God set the Old Testament priesthood in place as the way for his people to meet with him for centuries. It was important to him, and therefore we want it to be important to us. If we want to see Jesus as he truly is, we must recognize that our personal history and frame of reference is simply too limited to interpret Jesus in all of his glory and fullness. We need the frame of reference or categories that God has given to us. So we want to examine the priesthood as given by God. Along the way, we'll discover that though we may not have recognized it before, we need a priest. We'll also discover the only priest we'll ever need. Earlier in Exodus, we saw that God called his people out of Egypt for the very purpose of worshiping him. Under the Mosaic Covenant, they were to be a kingdom of priests demonstrating God's standard of holiness in a world that had little knowledge of God. This is how they would fulfill the calling to be a blessing to the nations. But this privilege was conditional. Israel had to obey the law of God. And of course, they flagrantly disobeyed almost immediately and therefore couldn't come anywhere close to God. How were they going to worship him if they couldn't come anywhere near him in their sinful state? This is why God ordained the priesthood. The priests would enter into God's presence on their behalf. Turn to Exodus 28, 1, where we read, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. No man could appoint himself to be a priest. No one took a spiritual gifting self-test and determined that he had the skill set to be a priest and applied for the position. The Old Testament priesthood was grounded in God's divine choice and call of the tribe of Levi to serve in this holy capacity. Aaron, a Levite, would serve as high priest. Aaron was Moses' brother who had served as Moses' spokesperson and had done miraculous signs had held up the prophet's hands in prayer and went up the mountain to see God. But of course, Aaron is also the one who led Israel in its false worship of the golden calf. So it's clear 
from the outset that being a priest, a spiritual leader to the people of Israel, will be a matter not of Aaron's aptitude, but of God's grace. While there were a large number of priests, there was only one high priest. And as the high priest, Aaron could not wear ordinary clothing. God's instruction to Moses we find in chapter 28, verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So we see that the Bible uses three important words to describe the garments the priest wore. Holy, glorious, and beautiful. We recognize that these three words are actually used throughout the scriptures to describe God himself because God is holy and glorious and beautiful. And the only way to approach him is to be adorned with holiness, glory, and beauty. The holiness or sacredness of the priest's special garments demonstrated that he had been set apart by God for his role as priest. The glory or weightiness of the clothing reflected the gravity of his priestly office. And the beauty of his garment reflected the splendor and beauty of the God he approached. The high priest was the best dressed man in Israel in robes made of pure white linen and decorated with gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. In this way, the priest represented God to the people, but the priest also represented the people to God. The priest was a mediator who represented both sides to the other. Whenever the priest performed his sacred duties, he was acting not for himself alone, but for all the people. And his clothing vividly pictured this reality. He wore an ephod, which was likely a long sleeveless apron or vest with two straps that went over his shoulders. And there were two semi-precious stones mounted on the shoulder straps that were inscribed with the 12 names, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when the high priest entered the holy place, he wore the tribal names of Israel on his shoulders. It was as if he lifted the people onto his shoulders and carried them into the presence of God. Attached to the front of the ephod was a breastpiece made of fabric with 12 precious stones mounted on it, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying that these people were precious to God. Fastened to the ephod, with braided chains of gold, the stones were kept close to the priest's heart. So he carried God's people on his shoulders and close to his heart. He was not only to bear the people's burden on his shoulders, but also to have their interests at heart. If you were an Israelite in those days, no matter what tribe you were in, when you saw the name of your tribe on the breastplate of the high priest, you could be sure that he carried out his work before God in the tabernacle, that he was doing that work on your behalf. The high priest also wore a robe made of blue or violet, a seamless garment that went under the ephod and hung down to at least the knees that had fringe decorated with pomegranates and little bells that made a tinkling sound whenever the high priest moved. He wore a turban of fine linen with a gold plate affixed to the front that was engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord, signifying that he and the people he represented before God were set apart by God and to God to be a holy nation.
Before the priest could be clothed in these holy garments and enter into God's presence, he had to be consecrated for service by being washed and anointed and by offering sacrifices. Turn to Exodus 29, verse 4. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So first he was washed with water, which was symbolic of spiritual purification. Look back in verse 5. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Once they were washed, Aaron and the other priests were dressed in the holy garments, designed for them by God himself. Then the high priest was anointed with oil, which indicated he was chosen by God for a special task. In verse 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. This special blend of oil and spices prepared specifically for this occasion was poured over the high priest's head and ran down onto his garments. It was a visual representation of God pouring out his spirit on the man, empowering him for holy duties. At this point, the priests looked good, but there was a significant gap between their outward appearance in the holy, glorious, and beautiful garments, and their inward spiritual condition, which was unholy and unclean. Something had to be done about their guilt, so sacrifices were made. Three kinds of sacrifices spread out over seven days. The sin offering showed that the priests needed their sins to be forgiven just like everyone else. The burnt offering, which was completely consumed by fire, symbolized their need for total dedication to God. And the third sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, sanctified the priests for their sacred duties. Look in verses 19 and 20 in chapter 29. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. The blood was applied to the lobe of the priest's ear, indicating that what he heard was to be devoted to God, and then to his thumb, indicating that what he did was to be done in dedication to the Lord, and then to his big toe, indicating that all of his work and walk was to be dedicated to the Lord. The priests belonged to God from head to toe. Their thoughts, their words, and activity were to be all for God. Finally, Aaron and his sons ate an ordination meal, sharing the remainder of the ram, the ram of ordination, the second ram, and finally, three types of bread, which had been put in the basket. Then God commissioned the priests, detailing their ongoing daily duties. Look in Exodus 29, first in verses 38 and 39. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Skip down to verse 42. 
It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. The heart of the daily worship at the tabernacle, and later the temple, was perpetual blood sacrifice. If you grew up observing the daily activity of the priests, the daily slitting of the throats of animals would have impressed upon you that sin has consequence. And that consequence is death. You couldn't have missed the message that the sacrifice of an innocent substitute was necessary to obtain forgiveness and approach God. And you would have been grateful that there was a priest offering sacrifices and prayers on your behalf and instructing you in the truths of God. Aaron is told later in Leviticus 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The priest had the day-to-day -day responsibility to offer sacrifice as well as to instruct God's people in the law and ways of God. So the priest was a mediator, saying on behalf of God's people to God, will you accept me on the basis of this blood sacrifice? And likewise, the priest said on behalf of God to his people, will you be holy? Leviticus 8 and 9 tell us about the day Aaron and his sons were consecrated. And at the end of chapter 9, we read this. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all of the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is a glorious beginning to the Levitical priesthood, but it was short-lived. When we turn the page to Leviticus 10, we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. As modern readers, we're not sure what to make of this. Honestly, at first blush, this penalty seems rather harsh for such a small infraction. We want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt that they were compelled by good instincts. But we must remember that every detail about the priest and his service to God in the tabernacle was designed by God. God was setting down a pattern that would point to the one who would fulfill everything the priesthood and the tabernacle were created to display. So strict adherence was essential. Nadab and Abihu decided to offer their worship according to their preference rather than according to God's clear instructions. So from the very outset, the Aaronic priesthood was shown to be inadequate. It was like a newly christened ship 
that sank the moment it hit the water. And it didn't really improve over time. The sad reality is that none of Israel's high priests ever lived up to what God intended for those he set apart to serve him in his temple. As we continue reading through the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we discover that as much as anything else, it was the corruption of the priests that led Israel into exile. And eventually, the priesthood just broke down altogether. Later in 2 Chronicles 36, 14, we read that all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, that they followed the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, desecrating the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated in Jerusalem. Hosea prophesied that the house of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. The day would come when because of Israel's rebellion, there would be no one to wear the ephod, no one to bear the tribal names before God, no one to offer sacrifice for sins. The priests that God had called and clothed and consecrated and commissioned became completely corrupt. They refused to listen to God's word. They had no heart for glorifying God, no interest in the ways of God. In fact, they used their position to enrich themselves and led those they were responsible to care for astray. Clearly, a better priest was needed, a priest who would love God's word and walk in God's ways and would faithfully teach and lead God's people. This would be the priest God promised when he said to Eli, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Surely this is the priest we need. If you had lived in the days of Jesus and you were looking for the priest that God had promised to raise up for himself, you likely would have been quite sure that Jesus could not be that priest. Everyone knew that priests came only from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. What the people of Jesus' day did not understand was that Jesus did not come to fit into the established system of priestly ministry and simply improve upon it. Jesus came to put an end to the earthly priestly system and become, as the writer of Hebrews calls him, our great high priest. Jesus was a priest because of who he is, not because of the family he came from. The writer of the book of Hebrews leaned heavily on the people's understanding of the Old Testament priesthood as he wrote to convince them of the superiority of Jesus. Clearly, the Old Testament priesthood provided them with a category that would help them to understand the ministry of Christ, who, like the priests in the Old Testament, was called by God himself, clothed in holiness, consecrated, and commissioned to serve God's people, yet was far superior to any of the priests in the Aaronic order.
The writer of Hebrews says of the priesthood in Hebrews 5, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, a psalm about the priest God promised to send, who rather than being after the order of, or we might say along the lines of Aaron, would be along the lines of Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? And what was the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a priest of God who was appointed by God and respected by Abraham hundreds of years before Aaron was appointed as a priest. So Jesus was not a priest by human ancestry like the Aaronic priests, but a priest by divine appointment like Melchizedek. Jesus was also clothed as a priest just as Aaron was. Certainly he didn't wear the ornate ephod and bejeweled breastpiece and holy to the Lord headpiece. These were merely outer garments the priests wore that were designed to point to he who was truly holy, glorious and beautiful through and through in his person. Jesus was robed in royal righteousness and had written across every aspect of his life holy to the Lord. There was one incident recorded in John's gospel, however, in which his clothing spoke to his priesthood. John writes in 1923 that the Roman soldiers arrayed Jesus in a purple robe. It says that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but that the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, why would John include this detail, except that he's helping us to see Jesus' identity as a priest? By mentioning the seamless robe, which is what the priests uniquely wore, John was pointing to the reality that as Jesus went to the cross, he was doing the high priestly work of bearing our sin and offering sacrifice. We were being carried on his shoulders as he took our sin upon himself in order to deal with it in the presence of God. It was our great need for salvation that was close to his heart. In doing his greatest priestly work, our great high priest hung not in ornamental finery, but in naked glory. Glory that emanated from who he is, not from what he wore. Just as washing with water was the first step in the ordination of an Aaronic priest, so Jesus was washed when he entered the Jordan River to be baptized. This washing took place not because he was unclean, but so that he could be set apart as a priest for sinners. His anointing also took place at his baptism. Luke records that when Jesus was baptized and was praying, that the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. So while the oil poured over the priests in the Old Testament was symbolic of the spirits setting them apart for God's service, Jesus was anointed with the Spirit himself 
This was God's anointing of his great high priest so that Jesus could one day open the scroll of Isaiah in the temple and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. In addition to being washed with water and anointed with oil, Aaron and his sons offered a series of sacrifices for their sins. Well, Jesus, too, offered a sacrifice for sin, a singular sacrifice that was wholly sufficient to atone for the sins of all God's people. This sacrifice wasn't for his own sin, but for ours. And it wasn't the blood of an innocent animal that was shed, but that of the innocent son. In Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, we read, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Aaron and his sons were commissioned to offer sacrifices, to intercede for the people, to lead in the worship of God, to distinguish between what was clean and unclean, and to teach the people the truths of God. Likewise, Jesus, our great high priest, was commissioned to do this same service, but accomplished it in a far greater way than any Aaronic priest. When Jesus, our great high priest, stood up and taught the people, we read that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught what truly made a person clean and unclean, saying, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Jesus led the people in worship, receiving to himself the worship reserved for God alone. In fact, when the Pharisees told Jesus he ought to rebuke a multitude of people who cried out as he entered the city, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And just as Aaron and his sons interceded for the people of God, both pronouncing on them God's intention to bless them, as well as intervening between God and the people when they deserve judgment, so did Christ intercede for the people of God. Jesus has ascended into heaven where he is even now continuing to intercede for us as our great high priest. He serves as our heavenly worship leader and prays for our sanctification. So we see that just as the Aaronic priests were called and clothed and consecrated and commissioned, so was Jesus. Our great high priest was also corrupted, but not in the same way that Aaronic priests became corrupt. It wasn't his own sin, his own greed or idolatry or apathy toward the things of God that corrupted him. 
it was ours. He who was infinitely holy, glorious, and beautiful became marred, not with his own compromise or shallowness or disfigurement of sin, but with ours. He who was singularly beautiful became on the cross as one from whom men hide their faces. He poured out his soul to death, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There is one key way, however, in which Jesus was not at all like the Old Testament priests. In Hebrews 7, 23, we read, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Whereas the Aaronic priest died, Jesus will never die. Forever, he will be our great high priest. He always lives to make intercession for us. He will always be securing our place before God and sustaining our life for God. For all eternity, he will be saving us. In the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, only the high priest could go anywhere near the throne room of God in the most holy place, and only once a year. But now, all those who belong to Christ are invited in, based not on our inherent adequacy, but on our neediness. So what are we to do? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To be a Christian is not merely to have Jesus as your example to follow. It is to have Jesus as your priest to intercede for you before a holy God, as your mediator to intervene in what would otherwise be a hopeless situation, as your advocate who asks the Father to treat you not as you deserve, but as he deserves. Do you need to humbly acknowledge your need for this priest? You can have all the suspicion you'd like about the religious establishment, but you simply cannot ignore your desperate need for this priest. He who is clothed in holiness, glory, and beauty will represent you before God so that when God looks at you, he will see only absolute holiness, radiant glory, and rapturous beauty. When Jesus is your priest, you can enter into the very throne room of God with great confidence. Confidence that you will find just what you need when you need it. Mercy for your past failures and grace for your present and future needs. You will be accepted and loved and provided for. Your great high priest has gone before you to see that it is so.